everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike and Robin Ellicott, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Pools. And today we'll be continuing our reread of The Running Grave, covering chapters 38 through 40 of part three. Please be aware, as always, that our discussion of The Running Grave will often reference the ending of this book, as well as the rest of the books in the series. Okay, so the listener question that we're going to do today is really fun. Yes, I'm so excited. Yeah, I know you are. This is from Elizabeth, and she says... What would be included in your ideal program for an inaugural Strike and Ellicott fan convention? Oh, one can dream. One can dream indeed. Yeah, this is so fun because let's plan one. Sure. We'd have to figure out where it's going to be, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, what food mm-hmm, we would eat, mm-hmm. the kinds of panels we'll have. Obviously. Location tours. Mm-hmm. I have so many thoughts for this because I love okay so I organize I've organized conferences like academic ones professionally Mm -hmm. and I love it it's a lot of fun for me so I have so many ideas okay let's start with where it would be I think it would have to be in London it would have to be there's no other place it would have to be listen I want a beer garden that feels like something that strike loves I want a courtyard with all different food trucks because then we can get all the different delicious foods that they eat in one convenient courtyard and i feel okay. like we could absolutely get truck vendors to come out and do the business they do contracts like that it's an event okay we could do merchandise so we would have an artist their great art design like a conference logo and we'd sell it on like tote bags hats little pins everyone can like a conference t-shirt great Artist Alley, like they have in Comic-Con, where we set up a little vendor booth and all the brilliant people in the Strike family who make such cool stuff, vaguely inspired by Strike, can come set up. Like that one person who makes amazing candles can sell like Strike-inspired candles and someone who just like clay polymer modeling can do little swan, you know, things, things like that. Little Artist Alley. There's all kinds of stuff you could do in a vendor's alley. A champagne lounge, like the Ritz. Mm -hmm. I could go on, but did you have any other ideas you want to get in before I do? I mean, I was just thinking about events, like panels. I'm getting to the events. Okay. I want to do like a symposium stream where everyone can submit conference paper style presentations about something they want to talk about and strike. And then we can organize it into little panels. It doesn't have to be academic people, just little, you know, you have a presentation on something about strike you want to give. We organize it into panels. We have a keynote and then we have panel discussion roundtables. I would love to see a fanfic writer roundtable talk. I would love to see an epigraph discussion. I bet, oh, you know, it'd be fun if we could get some of the people on the, on the BBC the actors or the directors or the writers or something to do a panel discussion. I think that would be fun. Autograph signing. We could do a screening of an episode beforehand. I mean, let's just throw in JK Rowling. I mean, why not go big or go home? If this is a fantasy conference, let's just throw her in. This is a fantasy (laughs) conference where I've won the lottery. Everything is possible. Yeah, everything is possible. I can throw this conference with all my own, you know, millions of dollars and splashing Mm. out on it. Sure. I have more ideas. Yeah, let's hear them. Pub quiz. But it's all strike trivia. And that takes place in the beer garden. Can Anna Kiara be on my team? Yes. Because I want to beat Anna Kiara. Oh, we'll see. Oh. Yeah. I want to be, I want to pit myself against Anna mm-hmm. Kiara and you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we got to do a, a podcast live show. Sure. Yeah. I know that you're not going to agree with that. No, I, I mean, obviously. It and you're must like, be done, but I, I can say know. that I'll do this because I know I'll never have to do exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what you're saying. What would we do? I feel like we could have a pre-planned, sort of pre-planned, sort of off-the-cuff discussion where we have a list of topics we talk want to talk about. And we all have our own notes, but we go in and like, you know, freestyle it. And this time, 
listeners, if they're there, can actually yeah. talk back. Like listeners they always say they need back. to. We have like a question mic mm-hmm. or maybe like a question buzzer and people can like, oh, I have something to say. And then we can, yeah. you know, we'll figure out some like interactive stuff. It'll be cool. It'll be fun. Be a lot of nonsense. Maybe we can hit the champagne lounge ahead of time. Oh, it's for extra nonsense. I mean, Just might as well. So much nonsense. People will walk away from that being like, I understand why you edit now. I understand why yeah, you I understand. Edit. Yeah. They'll walk away going, they talked about blue cheese so much. <laughs> were so many food related discussions that had nothing to do with anything <laughs> why are they so hungry why are they so thirsty <laughs> somebody feed them feed these poor women <laughs> and like you said on location day I, I was thinking we put together little walking tour maps yeah well katie has some that she's done yeah. over on strike fans and those are great yeah, They're beautiful. We'd like because you got to do map. as much as you can in the time you have. I had some other ideas. One ticketed event, murder mystery dinner theater night. Ooh. Oh, fun! I would be so much fun if it could somehow incorporate the books. Oh yeah. So have red herrings oh, and clues that have been in the books. I mean, I've got lottery money on this. I will hire a right. of actors and writers to create the perfect strike theme. Well, obviously, J.K. Rowling would write one for us. So I bet she would. I'm sure she would. I'm sure she's not busy with other things. In this fantasy world, I'm best friends with J.K. Rowling, and she's willing to write a murder mystery dinner theater right. scene for, for, for strike me. fans. Yeah. Why not? I would want, Lindsay, you won't care about this but ken's you might i would want a chill lounge that's a murder themed game room where you have like a bunch of different murder themed games maybe Mm -hmm. we can play clue on the tv then there to get me in to get you in there are a lot of different murder mystery games yeah i guess if it's not a fantasy one i think all of this could be done if we had millions of dollars sure right yes it's not that i think it would be really fun to get a bunch of people i mean obviously everyone would have to stay in different places Mm -hmm. but depending on how many people are there be really fun to kind of rent out that basement room in the flying horse just like strike does Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. have some fun go on some location tours that katie would obviously be in charge of of course i love the trivia ideas we could do those kinds of things in that room Mm. podcasts would be fun panel discussions we could do a couple of those that would be really fun okay flying horse basement i love very cute very on theme we could all stumble out and get kebabs from the shop yeah i mean i love the food truck idea bringing in different foods that they eat but it'd mm-hmm. be really fun to go to different yes. you know different restaurants that they visit and stuff and and order the food that they eat you like go to il portico to the ritz to the Ritz. Everybody get dressed up and go to the Ritz one night. I love the actor idea because mm. I know that in previous like Harry Potter conferences, they've had a lot of actors come in and do panels too. So that would be maybe a realistic dream. I don't know if it is or not, but. I think everything I've said is perfectly realistic in the event that I win the lottery, which must be coming up soon. I think for me, the biggest thing is just meeting people that I haven't meeting people got yeah. to meet yet. Yeah. In person. In person. Forming memories. Not you guys. No. Yeah. <laughs> Which locations would we go to? Because there are so many. We have to start with Denmark Street and mm-hmm. the Tottenham or the Flying Horse, I think. Those are oh, priority. Yes. 
priority number one. Yeah. And then I would say the two walking tours that Katie's done for strike fans because mm-hmm. really it's good. a lot all in one area. Mm-hmm. I do really want to go to the Ritz. I would want to do a Portico. Yes. 100%. I'd also love to go to Highgate Cemetery. Yeah, that would be fun. And take the tour. Definitely not sneak off because that's how you get murdered. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have more of an emphasis on wanting to go places than stay in one place. Oh, yeah. See, I hate going places. I'd rather just talk. Yeah, I don't want to go all the way to London and stay in one place. I want to go see the places. Okay, fair enough. That makes sense. Hey, you can be in charge of that. And I can do the schedule for the panels and the talks. I think what this is saying is basically, I just want to go. Basically, you just want to go to London and and hang out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with probably a pretty select group of people. That's fair. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I would love any of it. I loved London. I would go there again. I would go there for a meetup with five people. I would go there to plan a convention with 500 people. I'd be into all of it. I want to do a a karaoke night. Yes. Oh, yes. Where we can do songs that remind us of of the books. (gasps) Calling dibs on Say Don't Go. (laughs) It's my song. I love karaoke. I'm not good at it, but it's fun. I'm not good either. It's fun. I love it. And when I say fun, I mean, it's fun for me to watch other people do it. I wouldn't do it myself. You don't just Mm -hmm. get up and sing? No. Oh, two drinks and I'm up there every other song i i love doing the karaoke i'll be supportive in in the audience sure. and singing along with you we could do you know disney bounding where you sort of subtly dress as disney characters i've never heard of that mm-hmm. i thought you like knew every disney stupid oh you're being you guys sarcastic. i'm kidding of course <laughs> say, of oh disney my bounding. god we could <laughs> everyone could do their best subtle dress up as a strike character but not so ridiculous that people are like why are you in that weird outfit yeah. just little little things you know who would you dress up as well i have a born fitting blue dress that i've Ooh, never got to wear perfect would you want i'm gonna get a vape and go as pat you're gonna go as pat or i can you know move my hair in front of my eye and be either lorelei oh. or yasmin just for oh. you wow. oh that's a, that's oh. that's what i'm gonna do get a wheelchair and go as tempest oh okay oh. canceled immediately canceled you're canceled (laughs) who would you be kens i don't know maybe like jessica robbins i liked her outfit that she was wearing (gasps) lots of i bet there'd be lots of bobby bobby cunliffe yeah Yeah. i was about to be like oh right how did i not think of bobby cunliffe Mm -hmm. oh my god great look we could all go to that's a fun one Mm -hmm. some of the guys can like try to do their best matthew impressions just walk around looking like assholes i guess quine would be a good person to dress up as because he's a bit of a character right he has a look with the does he have a hat Mm -hmm. or something now i'm gonna need everyone's ideas for which character they're gonna dress up as and how you're gonna do it subtly so that you don't look like a crazy person wandering the streets of london who else would be a fun one obviously any of robin's characters would be fun Mm -hmm. any of the alter egos the murders would be fun janice Someone dress up as Janice. Mm-hmm. Irene. Oh, she's she's got oh a look. You carry her under whoopee cushion. Oh, I know. Someone needs to dress up as Satchwell. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, with my the God. with the button down and the chest tear. Someone dress up as Madeline with the Lame <laughs> shirt. Oh, somebody trying to dress up as Bijou. Oh, someone could just show up in a tracksuit. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds comfy. As long as no one shows up as Pez Pierce with nothing on. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll be safe. Yeah, don't get us kicked out of the pub. 
Oh, that would be so <laughs> much fun. I love yeah. this idea. That is a good idea to end this on because I <laughs> yes. want it. All right. Yeah. yeah. Send us your ideas. Conference. Mm-hmm. Crazy ideas. Realistic ones. What you dress up as. Let us know. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go to chapter 38. In chapter 38, Strike interviews Alexander Graves' parents and his sister, Philippa. The epigraph six at the top, not light, but darkness. First, he climbed up to heaven. Then he plunged into the depths of the earth. And that is from hexagram 36, darkening of the light. I think this is speaking about Alexander Graves and the idea that he climbed up to heaven or went pure spirit within the cult. And then he plunged into the depths of the earth or died and was buried. I also thought that first he climbed up to heaven could be referencing him literally going upstairs to hang himself. I think both interpretations could work. Oh, I love that interpretation. The visual of climbing up to heaven being literally going upstairs is so creepy and excellent. Yeah. I mean, like it's not excellent for anyone in the book, but right, excellent right, right. in a, a symbolic literary sense. It's dark. The hexagram says, here a man of dark nature is in a position of authority and brings harm to the wise and able man and it's certainly right about a man of dark nature being in a position of authority and bringing harm because this is very waste and this whole chapter is a narrative of how Ali's light was darkened first by mental illness then by Mazu then by waste he wasn't able to escape this fate but I think this epigraph is also suggestive of what will happen to waste in the end because the lines speak to evil containing its own downfall the dark may be superior now, but it will always fall. Waste right now is up in heaven. He's soon going to be plunging. I love that idea. I'm mm-hmm. always here for evil meeting its downfall. Always. So the chapter starts with Strike driving up to the graves' home, and the description of the house is beautiful. You get mm-hmm. a real sense of grandeur and wealth, at least I did, with the topiary lions, water garden, large oak front door after the stone steps. I like the moment where Strike stops for a second to take it all in because for me this is a little hint I mean along with the narration that he genuinely finds the and grounds beautiful and as we know I love it when we get a peek into their aesthetic preferences because I genuinely think it's also an insight into your personality a little bit Mm -hmm. and I think that although Strike is a bit of a reverse snob when it comes to money he is drawn to stability and to tradition and peace so this house is pure money but I think it exudes a sense of those things that he is drawn to and the irregularity of gothic aspects of it give it that sense of character and history that maybe make the whole rich people thing fade into the background for his judgment and let him appreciate the beauty of it if that makes sense it does make sense and this is interesting because i don't think we get any of those kinds of judgments that we normally see from him about rich Mm -hmm. people with this family Mm -hmm. maybe it has to do with the tragedy he knows they suffered but i don't know because flora has also suffered Mm -hmm. could be the military connection Mm -hmm. could be that he liked them Mm. could be that they got rich off of beer huh yes the bureaucracy (laughs) that checks out i think that they were a bit more down to earth than some of the other families we've seen like Mm. the chisels or i think the army connection is definitely a good guess the topiary lions are making me laugh a bit because it's reminded me of that whole theory we had i think we talked about this a little while ago but about the Mm -hmm. lions and troubled blood and how we thought they were connected to rokeby because there are a couple lion references in this book with these and obviously lion's mouth but i don't Mm -hmm. know okay so i can just go ahead and make myself look like an idiot then by confidently stating that these topiaries are totally clues that roki is going to show up (laughs) in book eight why did we think that roki equaled lion i can't even remember um it was because he's also a leo and his middle name is leonard right obviously we were talking about star signs because 
this idea came up during our troubled blood discussion. Right, so right, I, right. I think yeah. it's still possible, but I don't know. I don't want to hold yeah. on to a theory that obviously didn't come true. No, one would not want to do that. Maybe the lions are a hint that the graves in trying to guard and protect their son actually end up bringing him to the lion's mouth to die. Mm. And their attempt to protect him backfired. Or, you know, they're just lions, I guess. Yeah, they're probably just lions. But hey, I got to talk about something. We do. That's what we're here for. Yeah. Something. It's something. Something. <laughs> so when we first meet Colonel Graves, he's also described as looking sort of rabbity, which mm -hmm. of course shows us his relation to Dayu. But more importantly for me, the description of him as the standard impersonation of an upper class twit. Oh, that was, was so funny. Absolutely hilariously evocative. Yes. Mm -hmm. like I've seen this character in a million Monty Python sketches. It's amazing. Family Guy is what came to my head immediately because they've done this. Oh, I think we all knew. We all have our own. We all knew what this impression. was. Yeah, it was a very good <laughs> description. Good. <laughs> I know that some people are confused by Dayu's parentage, mm -hmm. confused who her father is. I guess we can clear it up. Maybe we yeah. can have Maury come in and deliver some results, you know? <laughs> I am always down for dramatic. You are the father reveal. I think people are confused, especially because of Corman's chapters with Abigail at the end of the book, where he's throwing out a bunch of wild theories just to stop yeah. the time. So he suggests to Abigail there that Wace was actually Dayu's father. But we have to remember that this was all just a smokescreen. He was just goading Abigail with the random shit and playing for time, right? Mm -hmm. I think that the resemblance between Dayu, Alexander Graves, and Colonel Graves shows really clearly that Dayu was Ali's daughter, Alexander's daughter. Yes, definitely. She's definitely Alexander Graves' daughter. Yeah. We did get this question from Julie, who was asking about Dayu's paternity, but she also said, if she was Alexander Graves' daughter, why the elevation in importance as if she was fathered by Papa Jay? Well, at first, it was solely because Weisamazu didn't want to lose custody, because if they had, they'd lost a quarter of a million pounds that Dayu had inherited. If they claim Weiss is a real father, the graves have no grounds for custody, and Weiss gets to keep his hands on that money. But why did they elevate her to a prophet? I think it was just useful. It was useful for his purposes and his image. Okay, so we have another dog and a dog name that we can talk about. Those are always fun. They are. So we have a yellow lab named Gunga Din. Okay, so I googled this. This is a poem by Kipling about mm -hmm. a British soldier in India. Wikipedia says, the poem is much remembered for its final line, you're a better man than I am, Gunga Din. But the internet tells me that this is also a movie starring Cary Grant from 1939 that is loosely based on the poem. Mm -hmm. And about the movie, Wikipedia says, the film is about three British sergeants and Gunga Din, their native water bearer, who fight the Thuggy, an Indian murder cult in colonial British India. Mm -hmm. I think what's happening is that it is probably likely that this elderly retired colonel from the British army was maybe a fan of this movie. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of interesting because this is the second person they've interviewed now where we're seeing glimpses of what they're fans of. Mm -hmm. So this man with this old soldier movie and poem. And then we had Need Doherty with Jane Eyre. Mm -hmm. This reference got me really excited because I've studied Kipling. I published research on Kipling. Like this is up my alley, although I haven't done this poem in particular. So I had to look at that sadly. But I think that you've hit on the meaning of the reference here and that this is about what naming his dog Gunga Dean tells us about Colonel Graves as a character. Mm -hmm. I think it equally likely that this name is a reference to the film 
or to the poem or to both, because Kipling was an incredibly popular writer of, of children's books, as well as short stories and poetry. He is the guy who wrote the Jungle Books. And I'm fairly certain that his poetry was taught in schools in Britain. Although for the life of me, I can't remember where I heard that. So it might not actually be the case. To my point. So if you don't know about Rudyard Kipling, he was a British writer. He was born in India and he spent a large chunk of his childhood and his teenage and young adult, young adult years living in India during the British Raj, which was the crown rule of India. He wrote for newspapers, so he wasn't officially a part of the colonial administration, but he was very much intellectually and emotionally invested in the legitimacy of the British Empire and colonial rule over India. This support of the British Empire is seen all over his work, but there's also a sense of sort of appreciation and affection for India as a country, as a people in his writing, that sometimes brings like a slight ambivalence or softening to his pro-empire perspective. Although, disclaimer, critical perspectives on how to understand this affection differ. And it would take me a long time to dive into that. So please don't at me for not exploring Kipling the imperialist. So in the poem, Gunga Dean is the Indian water bearer, like you said in the movie, who he is... Um, treated really horribly by the British soldiers that he serves. He's sworn at, abused, kicked. But despite all of this abuse, he remains incredibly loyal and faithful and sacrifices his own life to save and give water to the British officer who narrates the poem. So to name one's dog after this character, it's too on the nose. So in my mind, either it's an ironic commentary on the paternalism and racism of the narrative narrator of the poem and how he dehumanizes Gunga Dean while also glorifying him, which is like my reading of the poem Kipling was critiquing certain things. Or it's a completely unironic and unaware acceptance of the surface narrative of the poem. And I mean, from what we see of Colonel Graves, I'm going to kind of guess that it's the latter. Could it be the movie? I mean, obviously I haven't seen it, but since it's loosely based, is it different or? I haven't seen it either, but going from the summary I've read, it is even more sort of raw long live the British Empire. In the movie, Gunga Dean's greatest ambition is to become a proper corporal of the British army. And when he sacrifices himself to save them at the end, there's a scene at his funeral where they posthumously enlist him. And then you see his ghost dressed in a British army uniform saluting. I read about that. Yeah. yeah. So it is nowadays be how you say it, problematic. Um, <laughs> a little dated. Yeah. And I've read that historians now debate whether the thug cult was actually a thing at all or whether it was just displaced soldiers doing crime. So, I mean, yeah, with even if, if it is just the movie, I think the mm -hmm. point still stands because it is infused with the same sort of right. ideas about right. empire and colonial power. Mm -hmm. Getting back to the actual point of this, the character, Colonel Graves naming his dog unironically after Gunga Dean suggests in his personality a certain nostalgia for empire, an emotional investment in the crown and Britannia and the might of the British army as sort of the center of morality and civilization and all of that, which is, you know, the traditional sort of position for, I think, a man of his years, of his occupation, of his right. wealth. It also suggests to me that a sort of self-perception of one's motives as selfless and benevolent and ultimately kind and like, yes, I totally, you know, respect right. the, the little guy whatever the outcome of my actions might be. So the man, he's part of this powerful system, but generally he means well, but good intentions can't undo the damage that one 
does through one's actions, if that makes any sense. I might have veered wildly off piece there. I think that's a good reading of him. Mm -hmm. I do like him and agree that he Mm -hmm. means well, but I think that what you're saying is probably right, that it's an accurate portrayal of please don't at me, but some older (laughs) generation's way of thinking, right? Please don't at us. But you know, it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. this makes sense Mm -hmm. for him. This sort of mindset, this is his identity as a person. And it's a very recognizable, again, almost caricature of a person. Yeah. But I think Rowling's writing gives us a sense of him, not just as a character, but as a person too. Anyway, Strike is taken inside and there are three other people there. There's the colonel's wife, Barbara, their daughter, Philippa, and her husband, Nicholas. Okay, so the bow that Philippa is described as wearing is very familiar to me. It says, her bobbed hair was tied back in a velvet bow, a style strike hadn't seen since the 80s. I feel like I have memories of this kind of bow, Mm -hmm. but it is kind of strange when people keep to styles that are so outdated. I feel like it all goes back to that sort of clinging to the past, that sense of traditionalism and and conservatism. And I think that this portrayal of the graves is, is significant when we look at the constant mentions of Brexit in this book, which forgive me don't want to make anyone angry my understanding of this is not perfect as someone who doesn't live in britain but was just sort of watching this unfold from over here it seems to me that the brexit movement stem from a desire to escape a difficult present by returning to an idealized um, and sometimes completely fictional version of the past that's in your head with no real understanding of what the present problems are or how to actually fix them or that this past didn't really exist and you can't get back to it right i feel like that might be a lot to read into a velvet bow maybe you just she picks her style and she sticks with it yeah I don't know. You might be onto something because she's never Mm. been able to move on from her anger she seems to Mm -hmm. have for Alexander. So Mm -hmm. there could definitely be something about being stuck in the past. I think we're meant to distrust Nicholas and Philippa, though, because it says Philippa merely nodded at Strike, unsmiling. Nicholas made no sound or gesture of welcome. Well, anyone who doesn't like Strike is obviously villain material. This is very suspicious behavior. Well, you know I agree with that. I know. (laughs) I find this suspicious in real people. Deeply suspicious. (laughs) Definitely. But can we compile a list here of sus Philippa and Nicholas moments? Because obviously we now know that these two are just really good red herrings, but they do behave in very suspicious ways. Mm -hmm. First, First, they give Strike a bit of a hard time, letting him know that they looked into him and asking if what they say will end up in the tabloids and saying they don't want their kids to know how Alexander died. I was so offended on Strike's behalf here. The suggestion that it's his fault that the tabloids talk about him, like, sorry for being a good detective, I guess. Name one interview you've ever seen me give. If I had been there, I would not have been able to stop myself from going for the jugular on this guy because the audacity, the nerve. I mean, offended or flattered that they have so (laughs) much confidence in his abilities. Oh, that they think he might actually succeed? Well, yeah. hmm. But no, the thing about the interviews would annoy me as well. He makes such a point of never giving interviews to have these people assume he's seeking publicity. I'm like, you're on my shit list. We know right away that they're not happy about this interview. But they stick around for it. And maybe that suggests that they're interested in the investigation. Kind of makes them suspicious to those of us who know that killers will insert themselves. If we're going to be suspicious of everyone who lets themselves be interviewed in these books, we're going to have a long suspect list. But no, you're 100% right. They both seem to be boiling with rage about this whole thing. But they are still sitting there. 
Another thing is that Strike notices an eye roll from Philippa when Mrs. Graves said Alexander had a fear of being locked up. This was the one moment of sibling energy that I actually understood a little bit. Rolling your eyes. So afraid of being locked up that he hated boarding school as if everyone isn't afraid of being locked up. Not that I'm saying Philippa is right in minimizing Allie's feelings and trauma, but I can see where this rolling eyes response comes from. But being the glass child is a real thing where the sibling of a child with disabilities feels invisible because all of the parental attention is focused on their sibling who does need a lot of help and attention, right? And that feeling of being neglected or isolated can cause a lot of anger. Now, do I think this is actually the case for Philippa? Maybe, maybe not, but she certainly seems to carry a lot of resentment for what she perceives as a life playing invisible second fiddle to like an older brother. Yeah, I'm wondering if we're meant to draw some connections between Philippa and Alexander and then Abigail with Dai with, you know, just drawing attention to things like sibling jealousy. Well, you know, I think so. Yeah. Sibling jealousy. It's a theme. Another thing she gives a response of, hmm. When mm. Mrs. Graves said that Philippa liked having Alexander at home. I think we were all like, you can tell that you did not, in fact, like having <laughs> yeah. Alexander at home, Pips. Your face is very loud. <laughs> Another one is later on when the family trust is mentioned. It says that Philippa and Nicholas followed Strike's note-taking closely. I guess maybe trying to figure out what he was writing down that had to do with their money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another couple moments happens back to back when they're showing Strike some photographs later on in the chapter. Mm-hmm. When Strike looks at the photo of Alexander and says that Dayu looks like him, Philippo <laughs> weirdly snaps at him and says, how would you know? Which was very strange. Very. So needlessly aggressive. Mm-hmm. Anger is the key emotion for these two. Now the question is, is it anger for the obvious family history reasons? Or is it anger at Strike for daring to investigate the murder they thought they'd gotten away with? Ah. Mm-hmm. Who knows at this point? Obviously, we know. Right. I think it could be both. Realistically, mm-hmm. besides the red herring bit, I think that it, mm-hmm. she could be angry at Strike too because he is threatening this world she's created where Ali mm-hmm. doesn't take up most of it anymore. Absolutely. But then right after that, Strike is seeing another picture of Nicholas wearing an arm sling. Mm-hmm. And Strike asks about the injury and Nicholas brushes it off and then hides the picture back out of sight. So I remember thinking that this injury could be related to Dayu's death. Maybe the killer was injured in the process or something. Kind of reminds me of Liz Tassel's cough in Silkworm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally had the momentary thought that this injury would be relevant because it felt like the kind of thing that that is. But then I went back and read that bit again and I realized that the photo was from before Ali even met Bazu. So unless Nicholas is a time traveler. All right. All right, Miss Timeline. <laughs> okay. 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 <laughs> Me with my facts and logic. I know. Uh-huh. Maybe it's for those of us who don't pay attention to that. We just think, oh, <laughs> yeah. an injury. He's I'm hiding so it. clever. It's a clue. <laughs> I uh, forgot to read the words surrounding it. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that made me suspicious is when Jonathan Wace is brought up and Mrs. Graves said that Philippa liked him. And I immediately mm. wondered if there had ever been some sort of secret affair or something. I was totally thinking this too. And that Wace could have charmed her into doing his murderous bidding somehow. Like we were really on the same wavelength about these two, I think. Yeah. And then when they were talking about the fight that happened at the farm where Mazu acted offended that Philippa and Nicholas didn't want Dayu as a flower girl. It Mm -hmm. says, not that we wanted her as a flower girl, said Nicholas. She was, his wife shot him a look and he fell silent. 
I really want to know what he was going to say. I'm guessing it was just the standard. She was such a horrible, spoiled little brat, you know, that everyone mm. seemed to be saying about her. It seems really awful to be so mean about such a, a small child, like a four-year-old. I kind of think that that was the opinion of the people inside the cult because she mm-hmm. got less abuse than they did. It would yeah. be weird if these people had that same impression to me. Maybe she just wasn't pretty enough for theirs. Honestly, that's kind of what I was thinking. Maybe she just looked too much like Masu. Yeah, no matter what it was, it was a clear sign that they didn't want to say something in front of Strike and it was a big red herring. Of course. We had a comment on Twitter a while back from Keelan that said, P.S. I still think Philippa and Nicholas are involved somehow. Connected to the baby smuggling. No high-priced clients willing to pay big money for white babies. My one cent. Like I said, I think these two are very good red herrings. But Mm -hmm. I really think that if they were involved, we would have heard about it at the end. Mm -hmm. It's not like real life where all of the pieces sometimes don't come together. I don't think that J.K. Rowling would give us all of these clues and then not tie it up nicely in a nice little velvet bow. Yeah. (laughs) I agree with you, Lindsay. But Keelan, I totally get where you're coming from because right up until I finished the book, I totally thought this as well, especially with Philippa showing up at Olympia Stadium. The explanation that we get for her being there is kind of buried and kind of hard to understand sometimes um, if you're rushing to get through the book. So the explanation, as we do, that strike gives us for her presence there is that abigail called the delanis at some point before that rally and told them that dayu was still alive which it would have made them terrified that they would lose the house because it's entailed away to dayu if she was alive right Mm -hmm. the motivation he ascribes to abigail for doing this is that she was trying to make philippa and nicholas look suspicious in order to sort of obstruct or derail Strike's investigation by making him go after red herrings. <laughs> Although I don't know how Abigail could have predicted what Philippa would do to make herself look suspicious. Maybe she's just throwing stuff out there and hoping, right? It's still interesting because is this the first? No, it's not the first killer who actively tried to throw in red herrings to confuse Strike. Didn't Bristow do the same thing with, with Lula's yeah. biological brother? Yeah. The Philip and Nicholas didn't appear to actually have any ongoing connection to the UHC or the Waces. Philippa just turned up at the Olympia to try and confront Waste or question Waste about Dayu being alive. But the plot point is pretty convoluted and easily missed, I think. So I can totally see how you would leave the book suspicious of these two. I'm just glad that you explain all that and not me. Yeah, I'm still not 100% on it. We're going to go through this bit really slowly. We will when we get there. But yeah, they're very suspicious. They're also just weird. Being weird makes you suspicious. So there are a couple of pages where the family gives us a history of Alexander's life and they talk about his drug use and then early signs of mental illness that they didn't catch and his trouble with the law. Even with all the financial and class privilege in the world, severe mental illness can leave pretty much anyone vulnerable. I felt like I got shades of Flora in here too a bit, although her struggle with mental illness was mostly during and after her time at the UHC rather than before. Also, as a side note, can I say that Colonel Graves pronouncing it marriage Juana? Yeah, (laughs) so funny. Absolutely cracking up. Oh my God. Marriage, Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It makes it sound so scandalous. Uh, it sounds so scandalous. So fright. Oh my goodness. But it's kind of another floor parallel where smoking too much weed worsened her mental health symptoms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, pot absolutely can trigger paranoia and psychosis in some people. Clearly did for, for Allie. 
I was reminded of the chisels a little bit when they were talking about Alexander getting in trouble with the law and how they got him a good lawyer and he ended mm-hmm. up with community service, you know? Mm-hmm. Me too. And Mrs. Graves talking about how wonderful Ali looked in his suit when he was in court for attacking a guy out of nowhere with a bottle. Yeah. It definitely reminded me of the way that the chisels idealized and romanticized the memory of Freddie a little bit too. Actually, for me, this was more of a contrast because Mm -hmm. while both families had extreme privilege and got lesser sentences because of it, the reactions from the families, I think, are different. Mm -hmm. The chisels were all about justification and excusing bad behavior. I think there's even a moment where Izzy basically implies that someone like Raph from their family shouldn't have to endure prison, right? Yeah. But the Graves family seems to want him to be held accountable and they want improvement in his behavior. But justifiably, in my opinion, recognize that getting him help for his mental illness might be the way to to do that. Yeah, I I think I agree with you here because it seems from the story we hear that treatment and community service were actually helping Ali improve at first. And, you know, shouldn't rehabilitation and reintegration be the point? There's also that moment where Colonel Graves said that he was glad that he ha- mm-hmm. had gotten yeah, in trouble because glad. that's what he deserved, right? Yeah. But it's just, it's so sad that the thing that they were hoping would bring structure and healing to his life ended up being the beginning of his time with the UHC or with whatever they were at the time, because mm-hmm. we learned that this is where he meets Mazu when he's doing community yeah. service, which mm-hmm. we've discussed is their MO, right? Meet vulnerable people. See, I was wondering when I read this, what the hell Mazu was doing on a community project? Because mm-hmm. it, it would make total sense for the UHC to through things like this but as you pointed out the uhc hadn't formed yet at this point in the timeline we are about a year after the police raided fortune farm and the Aylmerton community was disbanded so mazu is about 16 there's no cult to be recruiting for so i'm wondering if she was if she was just there because she wanted to find someone that she could sort of get her claws into like a cult of one maybe this is the beginning of their mo maybe i wonder if it's possible that she joined the community project specifically to meet ali because if his arrest and sentencing was local gossip i feel like she could have maybe heard about it known that there was this rich boy coming in to do service do we know what happened to her when the elmerton community was disbanded is it possible that she was put on some sort of community service somehow because who was in charge of her her father would have been arrested her mother was long gone well we know she stayed at the farm i don't know that she would have had a legal guardian she testified in court so i don't charges were pressed against her yeah i think that at this time in the uk at almost 16 years old they might have just let her do what she wanted yeah i don't mean like punishment Is no there but some like sort as, of program you know yeah. to help her i don't know that there would be um but she was definitely still living at the farm rust and coats were still there too for certain and i'm wishing i'd put those two in my timeline but we didn't have any definite dates and they weren't too important so i didn't mm-hmm. but i wonder if coats took guardianship of her That's somehow because yeah that is horrifying and we know he had her bringing him victims yeah we don't know for sure what was going on farm in 1987 and why mazu was on that project to hook ali when they describe meeting mazu and she doesn't speak the entire time. It says, it wasn't shyness in Mrs. Graves. I could have understood shyness, but that's not why she didn't say anything. One mm-hmm. had a sense of real badness. I can totally understand their difficulty here in expressing what the dynamic was with Mazu because yeah, 23-year-old man, 16-year-old girl who's been horrifically abused, that looks pretty bad. But the reader has met Masu 
And we felt that sense of menace and badness from her. I think we are perfectly ready to believe the graves when they say that she was bad news for Allie. And luckily, so is Strike. Yeah. Because he already knows. And you know what's weird? Mm -hmm. Is this age difference between Allie and Mazu the same age difference between Will and Lynn? Oh, shit. Yeah, it is. I think that's the exact same age difference. Yeah. What the hell does that mean? I mean, maybe it's an improved version of the dynamic, the healed version, or Mm. on the way. Yeah. I know. History being cyclical, but changes. I'd have to think about that. Back to Mazu being a silent creeper, though. Also weird that she was described as filthy. Because isn't yeah. Mazu still kind of dirty? Yeah. It's been a consistent thing. What is that about? I know that sometimes victims of sexual abuse in childhood can do things to make themselves unappealing to abusers. Mm-hmm. Like they get to the habit, like they binge eat to put on weight. They can neglect hygiene to try and make themselves unappealing. So it might be that. It might be that she never really learned had anyone to teach her hygiene yeah and just sort of got in the habit of being filthy maybe she knows that it puts people off and she kind of enjoys that sort of mm. unsettling it's actually making me feel bad for mazu a bit well i mean it's a weird feeling i I know though it's a complicated yeah. thing it's a complicated thing she had an absolutely horrific history she does and she's also a terrifying monster there's a whole part with the dog arts which thankfully does not give me the same kind of secondhand embarrassment as the Irene one did. Do we agree? It's not as bad. It's definitely not as bad. I mean, I hate all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but come on, a human doing it accidentally is not oh. as bad as a dog. I'm just going to throw this out as a parallel. <laughs> Interviews interrupted by farts. Gross. Yes. Would like that not to become a thing. I'm not a fan. It's the second one. We'll see if third time's a charm. I don't know what that means. Worse or better. I think I'm going to call another interview interrupted by a fart in book nine. Is this a pattern? Five, seven, nine? Could be on to something. I knew you would hate this pools, but I have to be through. Of course. Next, they're telling Strike about Mazu ending up pregnant, which, to be honest, is giving me shades of Marlene Hickson talking about how she ended up pregnant with Lula. You know, now that you've said this, it strikes in my head that it would seem like a very smart move strategically for Mazu to make sure that the mentally ill but very wealthy young man you're with will support you. I didn't catch this before, but I'm definitely sensing some baby trapping vibes, like mm. Alita, like a Sarah Shadlock kind of thing, maybe. Because he did have money. He sure did. We've seen women do that before in these books. They go on to explain about Waze turning up, and there are a couple pages about Mazu clearly liking Waze over Alexander. You have the religious stuff creeping in, and you can just see how it was all progressing from farm life to cult life. And then it leads into the story of them kidnapping him off of the street which leads to a suicide. The way that they initially liked Wace and trusted him and thought that he would help Allie, they must feel so much guilt for not catching on to the fact that he was a total con artist sooner, right? Yeah. People don't become con artists by... By being obvious con artists. Yeah, by being obvious. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) True. A lot of people probably feel that way. I was very interested in their perception that something was going on between Wace and Masu and that the only time she smiled was in his presence. Because does that speak to the discussion we were having that other episode of over what drew these two together yeah i think i was more wondering about what is still between them but Mm -hmm. yes i suppose for her is that he's handsome and charismatic Mm. i don't know maybe he sent something in for potential power because she's connected to this place Mm. yeah i don't know she also did have a baby with a very rich father so there is that checks out as a motive for interest and also saw how good she was at manipulating and controlling so charmed her yeah saw what a good evil cult leader wife she would be 
think we can guess that she was valuable to him. So he turned on the magnetism to try and draw her in maybe. So we talked about red herrings earlier when it comes to Philippa and Nicholas, but obviously the biggest one is when they talk about Alexander's will and the inheritance that was left to Alexander and then to Dayu. And we see Colonel Graves get a little awkward and look over at Nicholas when he says this, indicating that this might be a touchy subject with them, that this uncle gave all of these things to Alexander and not Philippa. Listen, to be fair, if I was Philippa, I'd be a bit annoyed about the blatant favoritism, sexism, cough. Not so much about the money itself. Although, yes, I'd be annoyed at the money. I want want money. Mm -hmm. But at what it represents... You know, absolutely offensive, which is what makes it a red herring because it is Mm -hmm. understandable, but it could be something more. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the house that is now set to be Dai's or was supposed to be. Yes. And can I just say I was so excited to see the entail that a house being tailed away from an heir is a plot point in a Corman strike book set in 2016. This has got to be a fun little thing for Joe to slip in because of her love of Austin, right? I have no idea. You have no idea what I'm No idea. About. Okay. An entail is very frequently a plot device in Austin's writing where property is left to like a distant male cousin instead of the protagonist's daughters, like impoverishing them, right? To entail away something, it was a legal method to keep a property intact rather than being broken up and sold off by irresponsible heirs and passed down only through the male line because, you know, God forbid a woman own anything and women could inherit, but the entail is a way to make sure that they don't. So a male head of the family would set up an entail, which would restrict the inheritance and the use of his property. And this entail couldn't be broken by his sons, although sometimes it would only last till the grandchild. And then when the gets the grandson, the grandson renews the entail and, and makes it for the skips the next generation, right? Keeps it going. At least that is my understanding. Some 19th century history scholars might have a, a better knowledge of the legal stuff than I do, but that's what I've gathered. But for me, what is beautifully ironic, I think, about Joe's use of the entail here is that it's fucking over the family by not following the rules of strict male primogeniture as is traditional, right? It's just very funny that it's backfiring on a family like this. I don't know. Something about it is ironic to me, but I'd need to spend more time exploring why I'm so entertained. Because as we know, the whole issue with the contract was that the grandfather worded it as the oldest child instead of the oldest male child. Mm -hmm. So the house would have gone to Dayu if Colonel Graves had died before Dayu did. Yes. So, you know, either the (laughs) dumbass grandfather just assumed that, of course, the oldest child of the grandson would be male, or he was ahead of his time and you know all for the equality of the sexes i can imagine that this would be an extreme sore spot for philippa and honestly Mm -hmm. i don't blame her yeah knowing that a cult that it caused you and your family nothing but pain could inherit your family home and turn it into something awful yeah that would feel like a huge injustice to me Mm -hmm. so i was suspicious about this at first because i think we're meant to be but now this makes sense. I would be pissed if I was Philippa. Seeing this gorgeous ancestral home in the hands of Mazu uh, with her filthy feet all over the carpets <laughs> and her horrible whippings going on in the dining room because of a legal contract that your grandfather dropped before you were even born. Yeah. I would be fuming. This next part actually made me more suspicious of Mazu than anyone else, though. So mm-hmm. the colonel's explaining how they tried to get custody of Dayu. But the timing of Dayu's death happening right after they're fighting for a DNA test to prove Dayu's paternity is very suspicious. Deeply suspicious. Could there be a more perfect motive? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost too perfect motive. Yeah, exactly. Damn it, Joe, you tricked us again. <laughs> 
One theory I had was that Mazu planned her death or disappearance to avoid that DNA test. But Mm -hmm. in the back of my mind, I wasn't sure how likely this was since Colonel Graves also thought that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as Ink Black Heart showed us, sometimes a character can throw out a correct theory and then just ignore it. So we can't always ignore it. Exactly. I think I was more suspicious of Waste wanting to keep the money than Mazu planning it. Probably because Waste killing his stepdaughter seems slightly more likely to me. And he seemed particularly grasping after the money. Although we have had one woman villain attempt to kill her own child, but not for money. Not for money, but still. Can I take a very important second to complain about people on the internet? Always. Literally always. Because this next part has brought on some criticism of J.K. Rowling that is just so stupid Mm -hmm. and i usually ignore this kind of thing but this was one time where i threw myself into the argument on twitter because it was just so completely idiotic yeah they're talking about the inquest and colonel graves uses the r word to describe paul draper who we already know from other interviews had some sort of learning difficulties or something going on and he is immediately corrected by nicholas for his use of that word Mm -hmm. but what i am annoyed by are, again, people with this agenda to hate J.K. Rowling. They've twisted this part into saying that she calls autistic people the R word and just spread that all over the internet like it's a fact. I also absolutely hate that people do this. Either you completely lack basic reading comprehension or you're a malicious liar. Mm -hmm. Very certain that for most of these people, it's the latter. Although I am depressed about the general lack of reading comprehension. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that does upset me as well. But yeah. But obviously people who did not read this book heard that this word is in there and that Mm -hmm. also there is an autistic character, Will, and -hmm. just decided that that's what happened. When it is clearly not. Right. It was not talking about Will. It was someone else. Yep. Also, the fact that a fictional character's use of language or opinions or behavior is somehow reflecting her. <sighs> Do people not understand how fiction works? I mean, with that no. assumption, she's every single character she's ever written. Wh- what? <laughs> it's reminding me a bit of the discussion we had about Tim Ashcroft's rant in uh, Heart about fiction yeah. being moral. You remember, like the goal yeah. of fiction is to be a perfect mouthpiece for the author's correct views and nothing and we else. We all know what an idiot Tim Ashcroft the pedophile is. We all know. We all know. We all know. Feels like the exact same thing that that very vocal group of christians did to joe in the the harry potter days saying stuff like well she depicts evil spells and unicorn blood drinking and that means she's a wicked satanist or a witch or yeah she's a witch herself because she wrote books about about witches and wizards although you know actually i think that somehow those critics of harry potter were actually working from a less bad faith position than the current trolls at least when they said there's magic in the text there actually was yeah they're just wrong in other ways but i think that they're arguing in less bad faith. I really don't know what the situation was like in the UK. There was one woman here who really led that front. Mm. I wonder if she found some chill. I wonder if she found some chill. Yeah. (laughs) I just think it's really sad to not read Harry Potter. Or Corwin Strike. Both things are really sad to Mm -hmm. me. Um, Anyway, this kind of thing annoys me so much because the people who want any reason to dislike her will just take this at face value and it's not true and it's not fair i do understand that they're probably a loud minority but it's still really annoying i can't remember the guy's name who was doing this on on twitter i don't know he blocked me immediately for pointing out that he hadn't read the book and was wrong 
I don't know. I guess I have to think of that quote from Hermione from Order of the Phoenix, where she says, if she could have done she, meaning Umbridge, one thing to make absolutely sure that every single person in the school read your interview, it was banning it. Bless that girl. You know, I can always <laughs> take comfort from Hermione's words in, mm -hmm. in trying times. Truly. Right. You know what? The one that it's not Hermione, but it's Hagrid mm -hmm. when he says, you know, what comes, what comes and we'll face it when we when it does. Oh, that's the yeah. one that really God, so many powerful <laughs> bits in Harry Potter. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Having Harry Potter emotions. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to have Harry Potter emotions. It mm -hmm. just... You really do. Really do. I think the last bit of really useful information we get is the colonel's take on Cherie and that the investigator he hired back in the day found out her real name, which is great because Strike was coming up against a brick wall trying to find her. I kind of touched on this before, but I do like Colonel Graves and he reminds me a lot of Sir Colin in certain ways because I think both of these men are good men, good fathers who found themselves in a horrible situation and didn't know what to do to save their sons from this cult. I think... There are definite parallels between them, and I'm glad to know that they are going to live to see the downfall of the Waces and the UHC. Colonel Graves does seem like a pretty decent guy. Like, a bit out of touch, yeah. Making the wrong choice out of good intentions, lack of knowledge, sure. But yeah, I don't I don't see any real malice in him. He seems to have a, a reasonably good heart, at least in this mm -hmm. interview. I think we were talking earlier about Will and Al Alexander being the same age and... Mm -hmm. both getting teenagers pregnant, right? Yep. There really are parallels between the two. It does feel like a second chance with Will. Mm -hmm. So the ending of this chapter is really good because Philippa jumps up to walk Strike out. You know, normally... If a woman is jumping to walk alone with Strike, mm. you'd think it's because she's into him. But mm -hmm. clearly not the case here. Mm -hmm. I was kind of excited to see whatever <laughs> confrontation was about to happen. Yeah, you could, building. could smell the drama coming and I, mm -hmm. I live for it. But this is one of my favorite parts, not just of the book, but of the series, because yeah. Philippa tells him that nothing good can come from him investigating Dayu's disappearance. And it says... Strike had met other people during his detective career who'd expressed similar sentiments, but he never managed to muster any sympathy for them. Truth to Strike was sacrosanct. Justice was the only other value he held as high. Oh, me over here just, oh, my heart. I know. Mm -hmm. I mean, this yeah. part is chef's kiss for me mm -hmm. because it gives us insight into the core of who Strike is as a person, which is why I like it so much. Mm -hmm. It's to look at the values that he holds the highest in his life. And I think that it says so much about him as a person, <laughs> not as a man, as a person. Are you well, sure it isn't as a man? Well, let's not get hasty here. I'm just kidding. I just like when Robin thinks that as a person, it feels just like that very early chapter in Cuckoo's Calling where Bristow says the word justice and mm. that's described as the divine tuning fork. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know? I was rereading this part the other day and I said to myself, Lindsay must be absolutely <laughs> swooning sacrosanct <laughs> his absolute bafflement that someone could be convinced that a horrible crime had been committed and not want to prove that it happened to not want to do everything in your power to see justice done like he just does not comprehend how yeah. the fuck someone could think like that right mm -hmm. yeah but compare the actions of philippa to the actions of strike when he was convinced that whitaker killed his mother totally different they are like two different species yeah it also represents to me just the inherent compatibility between strike and robin and that they mm -hmm. both value truth and justice so highly and respect that in each other it really does underline how well their values align and I just, I love how the truth 
is linked to justice for both of them, you know? So pursuit of one is pursuit of the other. I can't say enough good about this part. I And I think it could be important later on. First, because he finally says his truth at the yeah. end of the book and realizes how important that is, right? Oh mm-hmm. my God, yes. He realizes and accepts the truth of his feelings and he says it out loud, even though he's probably mm-hmm. still afraid of all the things he could lose if it goes badly because it's that important. Yeah. And second, I can't help but think of Leda and him wanting to find the truth there. I'm very excited to see what else we're going to learn about her in the next few books, because we've only got a few left. I know. Mm -hmm. Whatever we have left to learn is probably going to be huge. What do you both think about Philippa's argument, though? Because I think I can actually kind of understand some of what she's saying, Mm -hmm. the way she describes her life where all the attention was on her brother, and she wants all of that to be over, Mm -hmm. or she's enjoying that being over and doesn't want to go back to it. That might be more. Yeah, that part of her argument felt super understandable, and I felt for her there. I can definitely understand her anger and resentment about the past. I just, emotionally, I can't quite follow the connection between that and and when you get to bury this injustice forever, no one needs to know the truth. So I I guess I'm more with Strike's feelings of confusion on that one. No, no, no. I I mean, I'm definitely with you on that. Mm -hmm. I just mean I can understand that those are her feelings. Yes, yes. But I would never think that that non-action is the right path. Right. Yeah, exactly. 100%. Plus, she's so wrong. So wrong about striking Robin not being able to bring down the church because I can understand why she thinks that, but she is wrong, wrong, wrong. They're going to burn it to the ground. So it is going to do some good, Philippa. I cannot help but love Strike's reaction, though, because it is so funny. Nicholas <laughs> is out at this point and says that nothing can bring Dayu back. And Strike says, on the contrary, my information is the church bring her back regularly. Well, thanks for your time. <laughs> He's such a smart ass. I love him. Amazing. Oh, we love him. Outstanding. Yeah, very, very funny. Yes, I love it. All right. Should we do chapter 39? Yeah, let's, let's do, do it. it. All right. In chapter 39, Robin is forced to write a letter to Rowena's fake sister, Teresa, declaring her membership to the UHC. The epigraph, six in the fourth place, means the finest clothes turn to rags. Be careful all day long. And that's hexagram 63 after completion. Mm. I just feel like this is speaking to the deterioration of everything, including Mm. Robin's preparations for going undercover. She's Mm. starting to feel like her plans are unraveling and she's realizing the places where she isn't as prepared as she might have thought. And now she has to be careful about the things that she's doing. Yeah, I think you're totally right on this. To me, this feels like a very clever reference to the fact that the preparation she made literally included fine clothes. But those fine clothes, that armor for her identity are gone and she's in rags now, aka an ugly tracksuit. Yeah, that fits very well. Like you said, she needs to be very careful not to be hurt by the holes in her preparations. All right, so we start this chapter with Emily Purbright is now back at Chapman Farm. Although Robin doesn't know who she is yet, we see that she has her head shaved and she's clearly on the outs with a lot of people. I love how it says that she becomes more interesting to Robin the more that people shun her. Yeah, mm-hmm. Robin's like, oh, mm-hmm. a disgruntled. Yeah. And there's this brief bit that talks about how Robin's group has had to endure more lectures than the more you know low-level work. I think that I would genuinely rather tend the chickens and cook vegetable slop than have to sit through and pretend to pay attention or worse actually pay attention to these UHC lectures (laughs) honest to god 
this is my nightmare. This would be a very hard decision for me. Yeah. Cause at least I could go hang out with animals. You don't even like the animals. So (laughs) I feel like I would be able to zone out enough and then I just get to sit and not have to do work. Yeah. But if they're asking you questions, if they're testing you on this shit. All right. I I might prefer the chickens. And if you had to pay attention or engage with the lectures. If I had to pay attention, then yeah. 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 If I could zone out. Yeah. Okay. I'll sit and daydream. That's weird. I'll do my, my imaginary romance stories in my head you know i'll see how many times i can make strike and robin kiss up here (laughs) i do that all the time okay i think i'm glad we've settled that anyway this is the bit where the new recruits are made to write to a family member and then tell them that they've joined yeah big oversight in their preparations not to find an address to send letters Mm -hmm. to but i think robin proved that like you said ken she can really think on her feet yeah very surprising they didn't prepare for this beforehand but knew the names of rowena's parents imaginary cats They show a sample letter from an angry family member to show that worldly families are full of materialist possession. When I read that letter, I was like, yeah, this is totally the letter that I would write. If I was furious with a family member who fucked off to join a cult, I'd probably say some unwise things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The thing that gets me is that the UHC blends a bit of logic and truth in with Mm -hmm. what they're saying about this angry letter. For example... This letter says that it's the person who joined the UHC's fault that a certain family member had a stroke. Obviously, it's not. But this just gives the UHC so much ammo to use. A part of me kind of wondered if the UHC completely fabricated this letter, like crafted the perfect, your family are the real abusers message possible, because I wouldn't put it past Mm -hmm. them. Although, you know, I also believe they wouldn't need to fabricate one because of the aforementioned angry family member scenario, which would be pretty common, I think. Given that we'd all probably write this letter, I'd say it's probably real. Yeah. They also had a list of key components of materialist possession. Oh and boy. Some mm-hmm. of these things obviously are terrible. Let's listen to their wise teachings. <laughs> Assumed ownership based on biology, abuse, physical, emotional, spiritual. Well, abuse is bad, but. Right. But this is what I mean. They're using logic. Is, exactly. Yeah. Anger at actions, beliefs that challenge materialism, attempts to disrupt spiritual development, coercion disguised as concern, demand for emotional service or labor, Mm -hmm. and a desire to direct your life's course. Gosh, that all sounds really familiar, actually. Mm, How so? Something's ringing a bell with this list of tactics. Where have I seen these recently? (laughs) What could it be? I could keep going with this bit forever. Yeah, no, no. (laughs) Go ahead and say (laughs) But I wanted to shout at this slideshow, like, these are all of the things that the UHC is doing to you. All of Mm -hmm. them. Demand for emotional service and labor. Come on. The only thing that they don't do is assumed yeah. ownership based on biology. They do the opposite. Yeah. Sort of. You assumed you don't own your own biology. Everyone mm-hmm. owns your biology kind of thing, right? Yeah. I just want to shake them and be like, can you not see? But I guess the point is that they can't see because the UHC yeah. are masters of manipulation and projection big time. They also put up samples of letters to write mm-hmm. to their family members. And seeing that really brought me back to the prologue where we read all of Will's letters. It was literally just Mad Libs. <laughs> just yeah. like Mad Libs at the form letter, like fill this in. Yeah. I noticed that they don't suggest that may the drowned prophet bless all who worship her is an ideal sign off. So either that comes later or that was Will's own special super devout touch to his letter. It could be either. Maybe mm. it does come later because they probably wouldn't want to scare 
their family members this quickly when they no. might still have some influence, you know? Yeah, you would not want to scare them off. So Will was just, he was just being extra, going really hard into I could see Will first. being extra. Absolutely. Yeah. He was. We know he was. It's part of his character. Yeah. Walter promptly saying, my son. When asked which of their flesh objects fit this list, makes me laugh because we do eventually meet his son Rufus. And yeah, turns out Rufus is an enormous asshole. He's the worst. I bet Rosie would be more accepting because I can just imagine what Rufus's response to receiving this letter was. I have to say, in this instance, I'd be Team Rufus, oh, even no. though he's real awful. Oh, God. So, time to grow some really stupid facial hair for Team Rufus, I guess. <laughs> Wait, wait, we have to grow facial hair because that might be a problem. <laughs> might be. Just draw it on with the eyeliner or something. After that's done, I think this is our first hint at someone being ill at the farm. Because, yeah, we see a worried-looking Dr. Zhu and then a brief mention of Jacob not doing well. And then we get a more proper introduction to Emily at mealtime when she sits next to Robin. I don't know how you both felt about Emily, but I immediately liked her because... She has a clear attitude problem with the UHC. You could tell that she has fight in her and is a bit feisty, which I can relate to. And I just really liked this about her. I thought that she was definitely going to be someone that Robin needed to get to know. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. She's right up there with the other people that we've seen that stand up to the UHC and challenge them. It was immediately intriguing. And I'm like, I need to know more. And we also see some family trouble that's hinted at. Well, flesh object trouble between <laughs> Emily, Becca, and Louise. Emily clearly has so much anger at her mother, which, you know, I kind of understand because if my mother yeah. had dragged me into a cult as a child and ruined my life, I wouldn't be pretty happy with her either, no matter how much of a victim she herself might be as well. The ending of this chapter made me very suspicious. So let's just read this mm. bit. Scowling, Emily picked the noodles out of her lap put them back on her plate, then deliberately speared the only chunks of fresh vegetable out of what Robin was sure was tinned tomato, set them aside, and began to eat the rest of her meal. Don't you like carrot? asked Robin. Meals were so scant at Chapman Farm, she'd never seen anyone fail to clear their plate. What's it to you? said Emily aggressively. Robin ate the rest of her meal in silence. Never in my wildest dreams did I suspect corpse carrots, but... Yeah. I did think there was something going on with the carrots. I mm -hmm. Every time I say something now, I think of that epigraph from something. last time. <laughs> something. <It's> something. <laughs> something. <laughs> I thought there was something going on with the carrots. I just couldn't think of anything that made sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, I, you know, there's, there's something off about them, but can't quite yeah. pin it down. I feel like clearly I don't watch enough true crime documentaries. <laughs> well, see, I do watch or listen to enough true crime, but I still didn't see it. I thought they were somehow sprayed with something, but I didn't know what. Yeah. I was totally worried that they were like mind control carrots somehow yeah well that's exactly what i was thinking, but i couldn't figure out how exactly but knowing what we know now i think kevin was probably the only member of her family that emily didn't have this anger for that she still loved so yeah if i was her i wouldn't want to eat my loved one's carrots i wouldn't want to eat these carrots at all i wonder though if emily was angry at kevin for escaping and leaving her behind. Because it's clear that mm. she doesn't want to be here. She wants to get out. And I'm right. wondering, why didn't they escape together? Maybe she was away. Mm. I'm kind of glad yeah. that she didn't go with him, though. Because if she had been in that apartment, too, Abigail oh. might have killed her as well. Yeah. All right, let's go to chapter 40. All right, in chapter 40, Strike gets an update about his Uncle Ted's health and does some more background research on Cherie Gittens. The epigraph reads, the most sacred of human feelings, that of reverence for the ancestors. 
And that's from Hexagram 16, Enthusiasm. This is a very sweet epigraph for this chapter because I think it's all about Strike's feelings for Ted. Mm -hmm. It's clear he loves his uncle and wants to do the right thing and feels guilty for the things he has not done. Completely agree. Strike's love and care and his guilt for where he feels that he's failed. I think it's also possible that it could be about Joan as well because there's the part where it says that Strike had paused in his pacing to contemplate the strip of sea just visible from Ted's back garden. Joan's Mm -hmm. ashes had been strewn there from Ted's old sailing boat and some irrational part of him sought guidance from the distant glittering ocean. That moment Mm -hmm. is so beautiful. And yes, it's reverence. You know, I love this particularly because Ted and Joan aren't technically Strike's direct ancestors, Mm -hmm. but they're the the ancestors slash parents of his heart. And he has the reverence for them. So it doesn't start out very helpful for Ted when it says that he was delighted to see Strike and didn't remember that he was coming, even though Strike had called that morning to remind him. The dusty house and the reminder of Joe not being there hit me really hard. Mm. How much do you want to bet that Polworth had a hand in making sure that Ted's fridge was properly stocked? It seems like the kind of thing he'd do and the kind of thing that he's done before. Definitely. Yeah. So I can see his invisible, his unspoken presence in that fridge. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we hear about Ted's appointment when Strike calls Lucy to tell her all about it and learn that he is being diagnosed with dementia. Their conversation seems like a very relatable one, knowing Mm -hmm. Ted can't really take care of himself, but knowing that he'd hate the idea of a home. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. It also reminds me a bit again of Troubled Blood because there were a lot of elderly people in that book and we saw different qualities of life depending on their health, what kind of home they were in, their family situation. It really is a tragic scene, but like you said, very realistic. And you're so right about the connection to Troubled Blood. The moment you mentioned in the epigraph where Strike looks up to the ocean and thinks about how they scattered Joan's ashes there and thinks that a part of him is seeking guidance from the memory of Joan is one, a deliberate tie back to that book and also really poignant because remember when Joan had planned perfectly what to do with her ashes after she died because she knew what would be best for everyone she knew the perfect thing to do and now she's not here to do that and strike is alone with ted who's who can't do that anymore for him either i'm telling you i think we all need to prepare ourselves for when strike and lucy reunite them because i think it's happening no i can't do it i can't do it i hope robin's there to support him this time oh that would be very sweet but there is something beautiful about that right about these Mm -hmm. two being reunited yeah it is i was just very nervous about ted being left alone Mm -hmm. i almost wish strike had called polworth and asked him to check in on him at night before he goes to bed or something Mm -hmm. make sure the neighbors are aware yeah totally i have to imagine he did with polworth yeah to keep an eye on him yeah because wandering off in his boat getting lost somewhere in town accidentally leaving something hot on and catching the house on fire i mean the possibilities are both awful and plentiful for an elderly man with failing memory wandering around on his own the leaving the stove on thing really really scared me that's one of my big (laughs) anxiety fears is the house burned down so i was completely on edge from this point until ted was safe with lucy in london because i'm Mm -hmm. like i can't don't let the house burn down all calm down me well i can't burn down because they have to find clues in there right clues. obviously but what if they were charred clues in a fireproof safe okay. you know yeah does not help my anxiety about mm-hmm. the fire thing got it so strike then checks his email and there's a scanned photo of robin's most recent letter where she tells strike about emily's arrival the letter to Teresa, and obviously requesting a letter back And then she also mentions the possibility of someone named Jacob being ill, 
and then describes her experience with Revelation. And then lastly, gives a no update update on Will. So she packs a lot of information into that one letter. God, I would not want to write all of that in the middle of the night. I don't understand how she manages to hold all of that in her head with all of the other shit yeah. she's going through. How she retains all of that is just... I could not do this. I'd be like, well, I guess some stuff happened, but I don't... I don't know what the hell it was. I can't even remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. So I imagine that Robin goes through this over and over again before she actually sits down to write. So she's prepared mentally. That's what I would do. That makes sense. And then it ends with, think that's everything. I'm so tired. Hope all is well with you. Kiss. Oh. Now, Strike and I really honed in on that. I'm so tired. It stands out to me because it's very unlike Robin to want to complain or pretend that she's not totally fine. Yeah. I almost feel like she wrote that unconsciously just as if she was speaking to him yeah exactly that and i think it's worrying strike even though he doesn't explicitly think here about being worried about it he knows that this isn't like robin if she's bothering to bring it up at all then it must be pretty bad and do you think that even though robin is aware that other people from the agency are picking up these notes and reading them i think she's talking directly to strike right he's the one who writes to her she's talking to him yeah strike is definitely (laughs) the only person she's got in mind when she's writing these letters not that i'm expecting her to blurt out that she's in love with him but you know what i mean in her mind she's always talking directly to him i could have done with an i miss you you know that's plausibly just an i miss you friends that miss each other well here's the thing though i think she is aware that other people might be reading those so she probably wouldn't have yeah but then you could just say i missed you everyone at the agency and you'd get strike would get the message right mm-hmm. and she'd just have plausible deniability next we get some more updates on his search for sheree and he hadn't had much luck because of her constant change of name but he thinks he finally found a good lead with an article about her arrest under the name sherry Makepeace. one thing i like about this is how it says that the harder she was to find the more interested in her he became because it just it reminds me of the previous chapter where robin's interest in emily grows the more she's being shunned by other people people. Mm -hmm. They're very similar. Yeah, their detective senses are tingling. The article itself that he finds is pretty interesting as well in that it clearly sets up Cherie, or Cherry as she's going by, as an accomplice to a crime. And she says she didn't know he was going to rob a store, but we can't know if that's true or not, which I feel like is foreshadowing. Interesting. I think you're right. Yeah, foreshadowing. This is not the first time that she's an accomplice. Mm -hmm. That's a really good clue that you've just spotted also this isaac mills guy who's mentioned in this letter is going to be very important later because this is the guy that robin ends up interviewing to get the true story of what sheree told him happened to dayu i believe near the end of the book she goes to interviewing him, him in prison he doesn't want to talk to her she finally gets it out of him by suggesting that maybe he could get medical care because of the publicity oh that's right right that guy the ending of this chapter was really sad where it says It was time to wake Ted so they could have a last chat before leaving him once more to his loneliness. And then my anxiety completing that sentence with, and fatal house fire, it did not help me. His loneliness and fatal house fire. No, thanks. This does make me happy with their decision in the end to bring him to London where he won't be as lonely. Yeah, it's the right thing for them to do. It really is, even though it hurts. And, you know, it'll make it much more convenient for him to drop a bomb of information that opens Mm. up brand new avenues of certain investigations. Strike can visit him. Lucy will visit him. Any day, yeah. Take him out. Jack, I bet, will. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. I bet Ilsa will as well. I bet. Robin. 
killing meet Robin, Robin to meet Ted. Mm-hmm. Yes. I really hope. I mean, we all wanted that with Joan. Yeah, it was sad. I feel like Strike might introduce Robin before. I know I already said this, but I'm very interested in Strike and Lucy cleaning out the house. Oh, yeah, mm. me too. There's definitely some potential to find some interesting things about their family's past in there. And you never know. They might be cleaning out an old cupboard or something and find an old locket that no one could open. Ooh. Hopefully it doesn't make anybody act evil. <laughs> Strike gets extra grumpy uh-huh. when he has to wear it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all of those jealous, petty thoughts that he has in his head, all of a sudden he starts verbalizing. Start in his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? That would be great. I know I'm joking about this. But if they clean out the house and there is a list of things that they go through and it seems to be nothing no, like normal stuff, pay attention mm-hmm. to that. List. I'm paying attention to everything in that list. Mm-hmm. I've learned my lesson. Yes. Same. This I will not forget about. This right. will set off the neon sign in my brain that says, look here. Because I've been thinking about this for, for so long. How many years? Since years. 2007. Years and years and years. We're ready for it. Watch it be nothing and have the clue turn up somewhere else. And we're like, I know. Damn it. Which is probably what will happen, but that's okay. Yeah. Before we go, we occasionally get comments that people would really like all of the little extra nonsense bits that we sometimes delete all the chatter yeah we thought that it could be fun to add this little segment here at the end of our recording so it will then be on every other episode where we kind of just chat what's going on with us what we're reading Mm -hmm. or watching how much we Mm -hmm. like blue cheese I love blue cheese. We love blue cheese. The answer is a lot. I've had to delete a lot of blue cheese conversations. You would not think that blue cheese could possibly come up so often. And yet. And yet it does. Yeah. How do we feel about feta? I love Love feta. I love feta too. You're not going to find a type of cheese where my answer is, and I fucking love that cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Besides cheese. Yeah. I thought that we could also do, because this is the first time that we're recording in the new year. Happy new year. Didn't we do that already? Just kidding. That was strike. No, I'm I'm quoting strike. Oh, I wouldn't want you to feel railroaded. I thought that we could do any New Year's resolutions if we have any. Eat more cheese. Eat more cheese. I jokes. No, that is not a good resolution for me. I think that sounds like a lovely resolution. I already eat enough cheese. Trust me. What are your resolutions, Lindsay? I decided that a good resolution would be to actually use my Audible credits. Oh, okay. Cute. Because I I never do. I end up with an email saying, you have five Audible credits about to expire. And then I panic, text my brother and say, what books do you want? And I send them to him. Okay. So use your Audible credits. So listen to more books. Right. And I already did my January one. So is that the octopus one? It was the octopus one. It was Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. Right. It's on my list. It was good. Well, that's a pretty good resolution. Yeah. Ken's, have you resolved to do anything? (laughs) (laughs) I've resolved anything. What's your resolve? You know, I'm trying to exercise more. I had Mm -hmm. an exercise bike that my stepdad gave me a couple of Christmases ago that is languishing in my bedroom. As they do. It's a furniture stand. It's a very expensive clothing hanger. Pretty much. Yeah. So I finally, finally took it out of its box and have actually been using it. So. Oh, that's amazing. All three of us have exercise bikes. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there some sort of app or something where we can track and do it together? Oh, accountability? Ugh, yeah. The worst. There probably is. <laughs> All right. Research fucking cycling accountability app. That would be fun. Yeah. Make it fun. Mm-hmm. Ugh, that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Pulse? It's the same resolution I make every year. 
uh, which is basically completely overhaul every aspect of my life to become a different person. It hasn't worked yet, <laughs> but I feel like this year. This is your year? This is the year where I finally make it happen. Okay. Every aspect of my life just completely different. Totally reasonable. Yeah, I think it's a reasonable goal. We're on very different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. I'm like, I'm... use my Audible credits, change everything about me. Every, I hate it all. Literally all of it needs to be thrown out, build a new pools in its place. But no, yeah, um, I guess, you know, eat healthier, exercise, follow through on a project. Well, you did your timeline. I did my timeline. So that's the first, that's one. That was one project. Follow through on some more projects that I want to do. Mm -hmm. Write more. That's that. Write every morning. That's my new resolution. I'm going to write that down so I don't forget it. But you know, that's it. The the huge. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to our new cycling buddies app. <sighs> I already hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I already hate it. I'm already planning on faking my death to get out of this. <laughs> yeah, I just put on some Taylor Swift and just go Suddenly for it. you're at the Eras tour, right? Uh-huh. But I'm just, what do my eyes do while my ears do stuff? Why don't you put something on the TV like an aquarium and you can watch Ugh. the fish while you listen to something? Ugh. Maybe like, you know, that guy on TikTok who's a lumberjack? You'll watch that. Maybe there's a YouTube compilation of him chopping wood. That would motivate you. I'm cycling towards something. Mm -hmm. That was fun. I hope you all like this segment. Let us know what you think. Yeah. Or if you don't, you can skip it. You can skip it. If you don't want to listen to us talk about cheese, you can skip this part. You can skip it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like we've had so many comments that people like feel like we're their friends. And I'm like, you know what? I feel like you guys are my friends too. The listeners, yeah. not you two. Obviously. I know. Oh. <laughs> I, I knew you meant that. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners are totally my friends too. So like a friendly chat catch up is good. Yeah. What are we doing in our next episode, Ken? We are doing chapters 41 through 45. And the two important things that happen in this section of episodes is we have Robin discovering those Polaroids and then Strikes Affair with Bijou makes the news. Ooh, those are two important things. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files Pod. You can also contact us on our website at thesefilespod.com or email us directly at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files.